Good morning to everyone here in person and everyone online. Uh, good to have you with, with us here at church who wants you to have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, you know, it's going to be a beautiful day today. No rain. It's going to be a lovely fall day. Crisp air. I love it. All, we, all you need today now is a Macintosh apple. <laughs> okay, it's going to be a great day. And it's going to be a great day today because today is Reformation Day. Huh? You know what Reformation Day is? Reformation Day is the day that a monk named Martin Luther took 95 theses, things that he wrote out, and nailed them to the Wittenberg door. Now, Martin Luther was a monk who uh, looked around at the church, and he saw that uh, the church was selling indulgences, and if you bought an indulgence uh, with money, you could get years of purgatory off and get sins forgiven by the purchase of these indulgences. And not only that, he picked October 31st, because tomorrow is traditionally All Saints Day in the church. And they would pull relics out, and then if you genuflected, which is kind of like a kneeling thing and crossing yourself, before these, you could get hundreds of years off of purgatory and sins forgiven. And this just did not sit right with Martin Luther as he read scripture. So he was a scholar. He got out his quill. This is the quill of today. <laughs> And he sat down and he wrote down 95 theses, which is things that he thought about that were wrong about this. And uh, he wrote down the five, uh, what are they called, Pastor? Five sol solace, which I don't know any Latin, so I'll just say in English. It was scripture alone is the standard. By Christ alone we are saved. Salvation is by grace alone. Justification by faith alone and for the glory of God alone. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, a lot of people would put things on the Wittenberg door for people to consider, and that's really always his intention for to get people thinking. But boy, did he spark a big thing, and it turned out to be Reformation and uh, the founding of like the Lutheran Church. And when he was really in trouble and uh, called to the carpet on this, he said, Christine, what did he say? He said, I, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. Yeah, God help me. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And so there, there he stood on what he believed. And by that, we had the reformation of the church. Now, uh, another guy big uh, who really looked up to Martin Luther was Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, he wrote a, a piece of music, and whenever he would write music, he would write at the end of the piece of music that he wrote, he, he would write for the glory of God alone. And he wrote a piece of music for Bach, and it was based on Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12, and that's going to be my call to worship this morning, Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold 
from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. That's Martin Luther, and that's us too today, if we put our faith in him. And so uh, that's our call to worship this morning. So uh, let us worship him and praise him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have men like Martin Luther and Johann Sebastian Bach, whose shoulders we can stand upon, and John Knox, and, and all the many reformers who in the past have stood upon your truth and, and said that we can only stand on this truth and we know no other, and we'll stake our lives on it. Whether we are imprisoned or are called to death, we will only stand on the truth of God. And Lord, uh, we thank you for those men. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, because you are worth living for, and you are worth dying for. We ask your blessing upon us this morning. We ask your blessing on Pastor this morning as he opens the word to us about the church. And the Lord, the church will be triumphant against the gates of hell. And Lord, together we stand Uh, because we can do no other, because you have given us truth, you have given us life, and you have given us a life like none other that we would ever want or think or imagine. You have given us a wonderful life, and we trust in you for even more. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing a hymn written by Martin Luther himself. That it's, uh, I almost said the church is one foundation, but that's not it. A mighty fortress is our God. Let's stand together.
Luther, the Reformation was 504 years ago, and he wrote that. Pretty good words. Let's move to our next hymn, which is Come Thou Almighty King. This morning, do we? Okay. Good question. I'll read. Yeah, I'll read. Ephesians 5, uh, verses 25 to 33. And uh, for those of you following in your Bible, it's on page uh, 892 in the Pew Bible. Okay, starting with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves their, his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you, Pat, for that impromptu reading. <laughs> uh, friends, we are uh, still in our series on the church, the series entitled Why Church? And we're looking at these metaphors that the Apostle Paul specifically gives us uh, throughout the New Testament. And so far, we've looked at two, today now a third. Um, the first week, the church is a family. The second week, the church as a body. This week, the church as a bride. And as we've said all along in this series, the church is God's chosen agent uh, to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. It's a calling together of men and women and boys and girls who've placed their hope in Jesus to together live out their lives for him to display the beauty, the power, and the glory of God made known to us through the gospel. The local church in that way then is the hope of the world. But the church at times, this whole idea of church can be such a part of who we are and what we do uh, that sometimes we lose sight of some of the beauty that the church provides, some of the, the, the gospel on display that it offers us, sometimes in dealing with just some of our, our own issues um, through the church. Sometimes we struggle with some of these ideas, and so it's good for us to be reminded. Uh, and I think perhaps of the four images of the church that we're going to look at in this series, for me, the most I don't know, compelling, and at, and, and at the same time the most convicting is this image here in Ephesians chapter 5 where the church is described as the bride of Christ. Now, I stand here today as one whose life has been changed profoundly by the local church. The local church is where I came to know Jesus. The local church is where I've had my biggest growth as a follower of Jesus. The local church is where I've formed some of my deepest relationships. The local church is where I've learned to give and serve and experience real community and so much more. And I would hope that for you as well, that that has been true. Some of those things at least have been true of, of you. I think what we experience in the local church is what any human would want to experience. In fact, I read a book over the summer written by an author with the last name of Harney. Um, and he says, what the human heart longs for the most can be found in Jesus and among his people. It is in the church that we are loved, extended forgiveness, discipled, embraced, prayed for, and mentored in faith. The best place for those whose hearts are still far from God is among people who have drunk deeply of God's grace and are ready to share it with others. That's what the church is all about. The church is what any human would want to experience. It offers what everyone would want to experience. But at the same time, we also need to acknowledge that in the church, it's not always sunshine and lollipops, is it? It's sometimes very difficult, sometimes even very painful. And we live in a day when it's easy, I think, for people to beat up a little bit on the bride of Christ, that is, the church. And in that same book, that I just referenced, the, the author um, offers this picture of what it sometimes looks like. And, and I, I ask that you indulge me in it and 
pardon some of the strong language that he uses, but I, I don't think it's, it's out of place as um, he shares. And so he, I'll read directly from, from uh, his work here. He writes, picture the doors of a church sanctuary swinging slowly open. Music begins, a wedding march. There she waits, the bride. Every head turns. The mother of the bride stands and the congregation rises. There is a hush in the sanctuary as the procession begins. The bride walks down the aisle and every eye is fixed on her. Her flowing white train follows as she moves gracefully toward her groom. Then, as the bride is halfway down the aisle, a woman points at her and whispers a bit too loudly, look at her shoes. They don't really work with that dress. What a poor choice. Another guest says under his breath, she's gained weight since the last time I saw her. Yet another declares just loudly enough for those nearby to hear, shameful, she should not have bothered to wear a white dress. Everyone knows her history. She and the groom have been living together for two years. Who does she think she's kidding? A man in the back shouts, she's a whore. The woman leans into the aisle in front of the oncoming bride. You're a tramp. Tension fills the air and tears well up in the bride's eyes. She stops. She's frozen. She's terrified. She looks around expecting to find support, but instead sees anger in many people's eyes. She hears the whispers and insults growing. She wheels around and runs away. With tears streaming down her face, she sprints out of the church as fast as she can. It might seem, he writes, like a ridiculous scenario, something that would never happen. But it did happen, and it does happen. He continues, in fact, something like this takes place every day. I'm not saying I've ever seen this happen in an actual wedding ceremony, but what I see in here is far worse and far more hateful and hurtful. Increasingly, members of Christ's own body slander, criticize, and malign his bride, the church. Now listen, I'm only 41 years old, um, but I've seen it. I've seen some things, um, and perhaps you have too. The image of Christ... the. Um, Christ's church as his bride, I think, is, again, both compelling and convicting. And nowhere, um, I, I, nowhere in Scripture is, is um, the image of Christ and his bride seen or explained more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we get images of or glimpses of the bride of Christ, like in Revelation 19, which I'll reference at the end. But here in Ephesians 5, I, I think is, is some helpful uh, truth for all of us. Whether we've been following Jesus for a long, long time, whether we're just sort of starting out in the Christian faith, no matter who we are, no matter where we're at, this is, this is helpful because it describes the church as the bride of Christ that is far more beautiful and wonderful than, than we can even know. But the tendency that we sometimes have and I'll say we, the tendency that we sometimes have to attack the church or to malign the church demonstrates, I think, a messed up understanding of the church or to borrow from a theological term, a messed up ecclesiology that's a theology of the church. That perhaps our ecclesiology is maybe the weakest area of understanding as far as our faith is concerned. And so how do we improve our understanding of the church and, and how do we see the church as Jesus does? 
And what a great day to talk about it on Reformation Sunday when Martin Luther uh, certainly had his grievances against the church, those 95 theses that he, he nailed to the cathedral door, and yet he continued to be faithful to the church and reforming it. We are here today, um, again, borrowing from a term that came out of the Reformation, semper reformanda, which was a Latin term. It's the church is always reforming. We're still reforming today. And the Holy Spirit is still reforming our own hearts and our own minds as we understand this gospel that, that we've come to embrace and, and, and live in light of, um, but this gospel that affects even the relationships that we have with, with one another. We need this word to shape us and, and inform us, and that's what Ephesians 5 does. Now, it's often shared in the context of husbands and wives, because that is part of what Paul the Apostle is explaining here in this chapter. But there is this obvious connection between Christ and the church as well, because the, the relationship of a husband and wife is really a picture of Christ and his church. And so I think we have something to learn here as we consider the church as the bride of Christ. And we see four ways in this passage that, that Jesus teaches, or I'm sorry, treats his bride, and then it moves us to do the same. Since we are Christians, which means little Christs, it would make sense then that, that we mirror his heart, we mirror his behavior with the Holy Spirit who is able to make that happen, um, taking what's inside of us and moving to show it on the outside. So, if you'll join me in uh, verse 25, here's what Paul says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. And so right out of the gate, a very simple truth just is so obvious. Jesus loves the church. But think for a second about what this means. Think about the implications here. It's a selfless love that, that Jesus demonstrates here. A love that's demonstrated through the cross. A love that's demonstrated in his behavior toward the church. He never stops loving the church. He never stops pursuing the church. He sacrifices for the church. He serves the church. He sanctifies the church. He provides for the church. Jesus loves the church. And so as we consider our relationship to the bride of Christ, the church, it moves us to ask that question. So in what ways do you and I evidence this love for the church ourselves? How do we treat the bride of Christ? Do we criticize it? Do we ignore it? Do we complain about it? Do we neglect it? Or, or do we reflect the attitude of Christ? Do we honor it? Do we prioritize it? Do we encourage it? Do we truly care for it? Again, some, some simple questions to get us started in what it means to truly be the bride of Christ. It teaches us how to treat the body of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But then as Paul continues in the chapter, and just in the very same verse, in verse 25, we see a Jesus sacrifices for the church. And so you see the text in front of you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself. He surrendered his life. He, he shed his own blood on the cross of Calvary. It reminds us that, that Jesus' love for us is sacrificial, but our love for the church is sacrificial as well. 
that sacrifice is at the center of what it means to be identified with Jesus in the first place. I think of Jesus' own words, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For truly following Jesus, we're becoming more sacrificial and not less the longer we follow him. And when Jesus really is everything to us, what Paul says in Philippians 2 is more and more true of us. That our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant or a slave. That Jesus calls us to lives of humility, surrender, and sacrifice. But three attitudes, three heart postures, three lifestyles that I think are in opposition to the kinds of attitudes and lifestyles that our culture holds up, surrender, sacrifice, and humility. But when Jesus becomes everything to us, our lives change the Holy Spirit begins to transform some of those hard edges in our hearts. And though we once lived for self, and for our own satisfaction, we start to become more important than me. When Jesus becomes greater and we become less, we becomes more important than me. We live in this world, though, that elevates the consumer. And we approach every part of our lives sort of with that, that bent and that question in the back of our minds, what's in it for me? And sometimes we apply it to our, our relationships even in the church. And yet as Christians, everything we are, everything we have belongs to Jesus, our worship, our hearts, our surrender, our sacrifice, our time, our talent, our treasure. When Jesus is everything, God's becomes more important than mine. That he calls us to sacrifice for his sake, for the sake of his gospel. And so, again, a convicting question is how am I sacrificing for the church? But isn't it interesting that giving and sacrificing are two very different things? Giving, give out of your surplus, but sacrifice, that there's, there's a depth, uh, maybe even a, a hurt that comes in that sort of giving. Give until it hurts. Sacrifice is... I think countercultural, and it certainly goes against the human grain. And so the question I think is appropriate as we consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus, Christians, that is little Christs, so how am I then, as he sacrifices for the church, how am I sacrificing for his bride? It brings to mind, how do we treat our stuff? How do we treat our time? How do we treat our talents? Do we, we hoard these things for ourselves or do we give freely to the work of Christ, to the advancement of his kingdom, to the care of, of his bride and her mission? And I, I hesitate to even continue in the passage because if you think the first two are not, it's not so bad, like you get to the second two truths about the way Jesus treats his bride, and I think they become even more convicting. 
that Jesus is also at the same time then sanctifying his church. And, and this has some pretty significant implications too, because you look at verses 26 and 27, what's his goal here? He talks about making her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and then presenting her to himself as a radiant church, a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Notice the goal here. Why church, right? Answering the question that we've been asking throughout the series, why church? Jesus' desire for us as his people is to make us holy together, to set us apart together. That when Jesus gave his life on the cross, when he shed his blood on the cross, he did so so that you, you and I can become a people who are completely unlike any other people in the world, a people completely sold out to Christ, giving him and him alone the glory and honor and praise through the lives that we live. It's part of the good news of the gospel. But then Paul also uses this, this beautiful word picture when he talks about washing with water through the word. It gives us a glimpse a, a little bit into the kind of care that Christ demonstrates toward us. And I thought about this, and, and even in the context of, of, of marriage, that I found that in, in my observance of, of, of couples in, in ministry, um, some of this caring for one another um, in this sort of deeper kind of way can only be experienced in some of the, the lowest times in life and in marriage. I think about couples that I've observed, and some of you are, are, are even here today, um, where your spouse, um, as they have gotten ready to meet the Lord, you had to take greater care of them. You had to care for them as perhaps a mother would care for their child. There's a tenderness in that level of care. There's a depth of love that you see as that husband or wife is caring for the one that they made a commitment to years before in sickness and in health. It's a beautiful thing. And sure, it's difficult for the husband and for the wife as they experience that challenge, but there's a beauty that's seen from the observers. And again, the depth of, of care and sacrifice as this spouse even does these tasks of cleaning and washing their beloved. That Jesus' desire for us is for us to be this radiant church, and it involves that very vulnerable activity of being cleaned by Him, by His Word that cleanses us, his word that teaches us how to live this changed and changing life. And his word, as his spirit applies it to our lives, is that agent that God uses to make us clean, to be presentable to him as radiant. That we need this word at every level of our experience with Jesus. There's never a time we, when we move on from that word. No, he uses it to sanctify us, to help us to look more like Jesus, to live more like Jesus, to love more like Jesus. But the problem, and, and we'll apply it now to, to, to us all as the church, is we see what Paul references 
uh, in this passage, on this side of heaven, as we look at the church with a capital C and local, the local church with a lowercase c and local churches with lowercase c's, we see the blemishes. We see the spots. We see the wrinkles, don't we? It's not hard to see. We don't pretend that the wrinkles and blemishes and spots aren't there. They are there on this side of heaven. And I'm glad that scripture acknowledges it. Because as someone has once said, in the church, you'll always have the healthiest of people and the sickest of people and everyone in between. That the church is comprised of broken people, sinful people. And yet Jesus continues to love his bride, warts and all. The church is right now, always has been, always will be this mysterious, this beautiful, beloved bride of Christ himself. And his desire is to sanctify us, to set us apart, to make us to look like, live like, love like Jesus in increasing measure. And so the question for all of us, this is always a good question for us, is how am I experiencing this sanctifying work of Christ right now? For those of us who are in Christ, his desire is to make us a far better version of ourselves than even we are right now. And as we come to Jesus, he, he, he takes the old and he gives us a new heart. And he takes those old desires and he gives us new desires. And he, he, he makes us alive. We're fully alive the moment we put our faith in Jesus. But that process of sanctification is being worked out over time. And the reality is God wants us to continue to change. He wants us to continue to, to leave behind those, those old parts of ourselves and take on this new part, uh, this new life that he offers It's the process of maturity. And the harsh reality is that Jesus didn't give his life on the cross so that you and I can just kind of continue on like we always lived. He didn't pour out his own blood so that we could still stay in our old patterns and our own destructive cycles. He didn't endure suffering and death so that you and I could just sort of, I don't know, self-identify as Christian and then just sort of go on living like we always did or even as a body live like the rest of the world lives and behaves. He did all of these things, giving his life on the cross, rising again from the dead, sending his Holy Spirit so that you and I could be changed, transformed into something different, something beyond what we've ever dreamed. And so he continues to sanctify us. His goal is to present us together as this radiant bride without spot or blemish or wrinkle. But on this side of heaven, he's still dealing with the spots, the blemishes, and the wrinkles as we yield ourselves to him and his cleansing work through his word and his spirit. And so I think what this section of Ephesians 5 moves us to do as as a collective body and then as individual members of that body is to remind ourselves of, of why this matters. It's always to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. It's always this reminder here to immerse ourselves in God's word, to, to allow the spirit to shape us and to sanctify us not to become weary in doing good as we're warned against in the scriptures, but to allow his spirit to work, claiming the the promise that the apostle Paul gives elsewhere, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It moves us to pursue the Savior as we daily repent of our sin, turning toward him. It's a simple truth, and yet it's easy to lose sight of. And again, I find it convicting as is this last section here in verses 28 to the end. He says, so in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. I don't know that there's been a 
generation of people more pampered than those of us who are living on the planet right now, right? And so his point here is well made. Like, we all love our own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their, their own body, but they feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church. So here's a glimpse into how Jesus relates to us as his church. He cares for us. He, he feeds us, for we are members of his body. And Paul in these New Testament writings is notorious for mixing the metaphors. So we have the bride, but now we have the body. Just as a couple of weeks ago, we had the family, but we also had the, the building. And so uh, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So he makes it clear what, what he's speaking to here. It's, it's, it's how Christ cares for us. It's how Christ provides for us. And then he concludes again with the, the connection between husbands and wives. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The simple truth here is that Jesus cares for and provides for the church. And he calls you and me as members of his body to do the same. And so what is our level of, of care like for the church? The church with a capital C, which would be the church universal, and the church with a lowercase c, the local expression of the church. But the New Testament describes the church as a community of followers of Jesus who live in the following way, who live this lifestyle of forgiving one another, accepting one another, caring for one another, encouraging one another, submitting to one another, that if we truly understand the gospel and are being changed by the gospel, we enter into when we carry the burdens of one another, that again, the, the we becomes more important even than me. And this whole, I'm going to just look out for myself, is actually the opposite of what the gospel births in us. But you know how it is? in the church at times, and I think it's not unlike what, what happens in our families, is sometimes there's hurt, and what happens is there's distance. Relational distance. Sometimes physical distance. And the same thing can often happen as we deal with our own hurts in the body of Christ. And we get this idea then, you know, ugh, the church is just so messed up. There's just so much hurt there. I'm just going to go out here and live my life for Jesus on my own. I can worship Jesus from wherever I'm at. I can grow to be like Jesus. I have my own Bible at home. I can, I'll, I'll be fine on my own. Or, or, as some are in the habit of doing, I can live my life for Jesus with just me and my TV preacher. And that's great. Everything's fine. Except that the New Testament has a whole lot to say about how we are called to care for one another and um, interact with one another. And, and as we get this glimpse of how Christ cares for the church, he doesn't do so then from a distance. He, he is that one who incarnated himself, who took on flesh, lived his dwelling, um, made his dwelling among us. Remembering John chapter 1. And he's given us the church so that we can experience this in, in real time with one another in, in real life. And so we can't really carry one another's burdens from a distance in that way. It causes us to 
open ourselves up and live life among one another ourselves. It reminds us, uh, as Jesus cares for and provides the church, that, that we're called to care for and provide for one another as well. That we're called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That we help to lift the weight of people suffering around us within the church. We offer words of encouragement and words of life. We pray for one another. We remind one another of the gospel. We remind one another of the hope that we have in Christ. And just like it is with husbands and wives, when life gets difficult and things get challenging, I mean, if this, there really is a connection between the church and Jesus and husbands and wives, then I, I don't think this is too far to expect that when things get challenging, we don't allow that relational distance to become then physical distance. Just like in a marriage, you would say it would be a messed up marriage if every time there was an issue, the husband and wife pulled out the personal ads and started looking for a new spouse, right? You would say that's a messed up marriage. Something's not right there, right? Or is that, I don't well, maybe that's how your marriage works. I hope not. But isn't that how we sometimes behave as far as Christ and the church is concerned? I told you that the last two were going to be convicting, and it is for me too. Listen, listen. I know church people do it. I know lots of pastors do it too. But Jesus cares for his church and provides for his church in some, I, I think, beautiful ways. And he does call us to do the same. And it is difficult. But for me, it's convicting. And I hope it is for you. That he has a commitment to us and we have a commitment to him and to one another. And some days, the church doesn't feel much like a bride, does it? Some days the church doesn't feel very beautiful or glamorous. And so I want to end with this picture. And it's a picture from the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, as you may know, is the last book of the Bible. It describes a, a lot of it describes events that will happen someday in the future. When? I don't know. Um, soon, perhaps, and I'll say hopefully. Um, the scripture calls us to be ready, no matter what, right? For the return of Jesus for his bride, that is the church. And in Revelation chapter 19, um, we have this picture where we'll someday be intimately joined together with Jesus. Right now on this side of heaven, um, we live all of these things out and believe all these things by faith, but someday we will, we will experience this by sight. It's a guarantee. And we'll spend eternity with him. It's the scene in Revelation chapter 19. But what we're doing right now on earth as the bride of Christ is in preparation for that, 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 that day that will take place someday, which I think adds a, a, a weightiness 
and maybe even a sense of urgency on what is described for us in Ephesians chapter 5. So someday we'll experience all this in its fullness. Right now, we're experiencing preparation for that, that, great, that, that, great, that great wedding feast someday. And can you imagine what it would look like if you and I and all the believers around the world lived out Ephesians chapter 5, at least our place in Ephesians chapter 5? I think we'd see God do that which is exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. It's Ephesians chapter 3. And so what does this move us to do? I think it, it moves us to, to look inward, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Look inward. Where is there a disconnect between what's described in Ephesians chapter 5 and your heart and my own heart? I think it moves us to, to um, look around within the church and if we're not serving to serve, if we're not giving to give, if we're not connected to connect, if we're not praying for our church, then to commit to praying for our church. If we're not celebrating what God is doing, then commit to celebrating what God is doing. It's, it's very practical. But the church is a gift given to all of us. Again, my life has been profoundly affected by the church in good times and in difficult ones. And I pray that yours is and has been as well. And that we'll continue to live out the good news of the gospel and share the good news of the gospel so that others can experience this as well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, um, we are deeply convicted by what you share with us. And Lord, speaking for myself, it's, it's easy at times um, to get focused on the, the spots and the wrinkles and the blemishes among your people. And Lord, it's, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to lose heart. And yet, Lord, you have made your word clear to us that your desire is um, to present us holy and blameless. Your desire, Lord, is to present a radiant church. And so, Lord, we are filled with praise today because you have loved us so much that you gave your life on the cross. And you've allowed us to experience new life through our faith in Jesus alone. We're grateful for the depth of sacrifice that you've demonstrated for us as individuals and us as a people. We're grateful, Lord, for your faithfulness through generations in advancing your gospel and advancing your church's mission. But Lord, we are convicted because we, we don't always love the church as you do. We don't always sacrifice the way you call us to. We don't always open ourselves up to this, your sanctifying work in our lives. Lord, we're guilty of not always caring for and providing for your bride. But Lord, we thank you for your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the work that you do in our hearts as you continue to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. 
So Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for each one of us who are here today or who are watching online that you would help us identify how to respond to this passage. That, that you would um, move in our hearts as we turn from some of these sinful parts of ourselves and turn toward the Savior that, Lord, you would do a sanctifying work through us as individuals and through us together that we would see you do until the day you return for us, your bride, that which is exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. For your glory and yours alone, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Pastor was uh, praying, I was thinking, not that I wasn't concentrating on his prayer, I was, but um, that hymn, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's what we are, a church washed in the blood of the Lamb without spot or wrinkle. How great, how great. Um, you know, let us this morning as we give of our tithes and offerings, uh, think of ways to give of ourselves too. And you know, on Wednesday night, I think it is, is our shoebox packing event for uh, the... Uh, Operation Christmas Child. Wouldn't that be fun? We went, got some stuff, and got together on Wednesday night and packed some shoeboxes together. Wouldn't that be fun? We could make an impact on some children for Christmas far away because we're a church. We're a church that can reach out and, and make a difference. So uh, let's pray together. Father, may we as a church that you have sacrificed for, that you have given yourself for, that you uh, have washed in your blood and made without spot or wrinkle. Lord, may we serve you. May we give of our resources to your work. And may you use our hands, our feet, our minds, and our money for your kingdom, for your glory, and all that you have planned for this Grace Church to do as a part of your church universal. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing our final hymn, We Are One in the Bond of Love. to our prayer is I see there's a prayer request there for Elodie Chudnoski uh, for her ongoing heart conditions. Uh, I see that Carol's now graduated to a crutch, Carol Dorr, so that's a praise. Uh, and uh, Robbie Roberts, of course. And I have two additions. Uh, Ruthann uh, Brandt has been so weak and they found out today, or not today, but this week, uh, I found out today that uh, the reason why she's been so weak is her iron has been so low, doctor found out it, it's like barely registering. So they are going to start treating that. And uh, Judy uh, Wegeman is to have surgery on her back this week, but it's still pending uh, the insurance approval. You know that dang insurance. So let us pray that the insurance would uh, please uh, would uh, certify this so that she could have her surgery. So uh, those are the two additions. So let's pray together. Father, we uh, pray for uh, these requests here before you. We thank you for your answers to prayer. We thank you for the answers in each of our lives that... Uh, we, uh, we acknowledge here uh, for uh, Carol's uh, continuing improvement with her fractured foot. We thank you uh, for Bruce's uh, getting uh, better every day. We thank you for uh, all the uh, improvements here for Barb Adam and how she improves every day from her fracture. Uh, for just the many answered prayers, Lord, that you answer every day, uh, not just the, the big ones that we pray about on Sundays, but every day, Lord, you shower blessings upon us and answers to prayer. Uh, we have uh, these ongoing prayer requests for Daryl and Barb and 
Truman and Ruth Ann, and now this low iron that uh, we believe is causing so much of Ruth Ann's weakness. We ask that uh, infusions and pills or whatever diet would help Ruth Ann gain some of that iron back and energy that she needs for day to day. For Elodie and her heart conditions, a lovely woman of uh, servant of yours. Uh, for Bruce as he continues to recover and Carol for healing. Um, uh, for all of these requests here. Uh, for Judy for her surgery, Lord, may it uh, be approved by the uh, insurance so that she can have the surgery she needs on her back. Lord, for us as a church, that we would grow and uh, in in stature and approval of, of, of you and growing in uh, service and wisdom and strength and uh, knowledge of you. And uh, Lord, may we always want to do things to your glory and always want to serve you best. And Lord, uh, this country too, Father, how, how we need, how we need that to have a touch from you and a, a turning to you and a revival that begins in our own heart and just spreads to those around us, Lord, and to our government so that we would truly be a government that can live up to the, the motto, in God we trust because it seems like as we look around, we aren't trusting in God as a nation. We trust in money, we trust in things, we trust in ourselves, but we don't seem to trust in you. And a nation that does not uh, trust and love you cannot stand. So Lord, turn us around, help us to trust in you again, and stand on the principles on which we were once founded. Lord, we pray these things in your precious son's name. For the benediction, I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 